Hi, you're listening to Dancing Dog Blog. I'm your host, Mary Haight, with the third in our monthly series on preventive health care for pets. Today, we'll be talking about vaccines, the case for and against, covering core and elective choices, titers, and new protocols, followed by questions readers have asked. Dr. April Steele, National Spokesperson for the Partners for Healthy Pets Initiative and a veterinarian with an American Animal Hospital Association practice, is back to lead this discussion on vaccines and the health of our dogs and cats. Nice to have you with us again, April. Thanks for having me back. You know, uh, dog parks, groomers, doggy daycare, etc., etc., all have their own required vaccines before they let your dog in. They're core, non-core, or elective, uh, used depending on what diseases are encroaching or present in your area. Can you sort this out for us? How have vaccination protocols changed recently? Why the change? And what are the guidelines? Sure, I'd be happy to give this a shot. There's a lot of information, so I'll touch on the basics and we can follow up with any um, additional questions. There are what we call core and non-core vaccinations, and core vaccinations are vaccines that should be given to every animal regardless of exposure, lifestyle, um, and really age. So those core vaccines are the ones that people are mostly familiar with. There's a distemper parvo combo. We call that the DA2PP. And that one needs to start um, at least by eight weeks of age. And we give that at eight, 12, and 16 weeks. Um, then a year later and every three years after that. The other core vaccine is rabies. Of course, there are a lot of laws concerning rabies vaccinations. So as far as the vaccines that every animal should get, the only ones are the distemper combination and the rabies vaccine. Every other vaccine is considered non-core. And by non-core, we mean that these are very valuable vaccinations, but they need to be based on the animal's lifestyle, their age, their exposure, and their geographical location. So just a few of those, Bordetella, which is for kennel cough, um, is a non-core vaccine. Only dogs that are in boarding facilities, grooming facilities, doggy daycares, um, obedience training, where they're going to have an intensive exposure to other dogs should receive the kennel cough or Bordetella vaccine. The interesting thing about that vaccine is all of the currently available vaccines for Bordetella do provide a one-year immunity, and they're actually labeled for one year. This is the one vaccine where a lot of boarding facilities and groomers are requiring it every six months, and there's no scientific data that supports that. Um, however, if you want to take your animal to this facility, you kind of have to follow their rules. So from a scientific point of view, once a year, kennel cough vaccine is appropriate if there is exposure. That same group of animals, the ones that are in the these dog intensive areas really are at risk for canine influenza virus. And this is a newer vaccine that we're using. But there's this real difference with canine influenza virus from Bordetella. And that is that it really has a geographical distribution that's really clearly in Colorado, Florida, and New York right now. That doesn't mean so an animal in another state couldn't get it. And I think that one day it's going to kind of go through the whole United States. But at this point in time, when I'm assessing the need, I really look to see if there's exposure in Colorado, Florida, or New York before I recommend the canine influenza influenza virus vaccine. 
There's a Giardia vaccine which doesn't work, has been shown to be ineffective, and I don't recommend, and it's actually going to be um, not produced anymore because they can't prove that it's effective. So don't use Giardia vaccine. Um, there's two others that are considered non-core that are commonly used. Um, leptospirosis, which is a really interesting one. Um, if animals go to the mountains and they actually drink from water where wildlife has been around and urinated in, um, they can get leptospirosis, and leptospirosis can be a nasty disease. So I really look like the exposure of my patients when I'm deciding whether I need to recommend vaccination for leptospirosis. And if I have an animal that's a city dweller who doesn't um, go up to the mountains, doesn't go around standing water in the environment, then I don't want to vaccinate that animal for leptospirosis. But if they do um, have those exposures, then it, it's an important thing to vaccinate for. And Lyme disease is one where it's a little bit different. I mean, really a strong geographical distribution, East Coast, Northeast, um, and very little Lyme disease in the rest of the country. Um, so only if they have strong exposure to that geographical area is Lyme um, vaccine recommended. And another way to prevent Lyme disease is with tick prevention since it's spread by ticks. So it's an alternative as well. You know, that's really interesting because so many uh, city vets uh, give as a matter of course leptospirosis because of the rat problem. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. Um, I There's always a balance, and it really depends who you talk to. And this isn't just among practicing veterinarians, but even the immunologists disagree a little bit. Some feel that there's enough exposure in the city that all animals should be vaccinated for leptospirosis. And this is even dogs that even walk around down a canal in town um, or a, a rat in the, in the city. But um, there's a lot of... Um, immunologists that feel like there's very little exposure if there's no standing water. And most of our data of animals that have received leptospirosis or or contracted the disease have had exposure to standing water or water in the environment. It doesn't have to be standing. It can be running, but water in the environment that wildlife has been exposed to. So, you know, for for me personally, I really don't recommend it if an animal is not going to be around these water sources. And rats aren't a water source to me. So many people have become skittish about vaccinations, uh, not only for themselves, but, you know, that transfers down to their animals, too. Um, They're concerned about over-vaccinating and side effects, such as sarcoma and other things. Uh, What are titer tests, uh, and how do they come into play here, and should they be used to decide if a vaccination is needed or not? You know, titer tests are interesting. Titer tests actually measure antibodies in a dog, but not all immune responses from all um, vaccines create this type of antibody. So there's two major types of vaccines. One is an inactivated live vaccine and one is a modified live vaccine. So um, each one induces a different type of immunity. There are some vaccines that actually produce great antibodies and you can really measure that antibody in a blood test and determine if that animal is likely to have immunity if exposed to that disease. And that that works well for the distemper, the parvo, and the rabies. Um, there are some vaccines that induce a different type of immunity, and those titer tests have no correlation with an expectation that that animal will be immune to that disease. And those are diseases like Lyme disease and leptospirosis. So for rabies, distemper, parvo, virus, the core vaccines, really, you can do a titer test instead of vaccinating and determine if the animal is
is immune. The problem with rabies is most municipalities do not accept a titer test for legal um, reasons and for licensing. And if an animal has a, a good titer but they bite another animal or a person, they are considered unvaccinated if that vaccine has expired. So there's a little bit of a legality associated with using titer tests for rabies. Um, however, like I said, rabies, distemper, and um, parvovirus have great correlation between this blood test that looks at the antibodies and their immunity to those diseases. For some of my clients that are really worried about um, over-vaccinating or for my clients who have had an animal that's had a vaccine reaction and we really don't want to vaccinate unless we absolutely have to, we'll use titer tests to determine if it's safe to not vaccinate. It's, it's, it's interesting to me because I've known uh, two people whose dogs have had really bad reactions to vaccines and one was due to rabies that ended in a series of uh, major health impacts and after a period of uh, maybe a couple of years, the dog died from those effects. And the other was a weakness noticed in the dog after getting a leptospirosis and a malaise, you know, kind of thing that the, and the dog snapped out of it later. But what, what's been your experience with bad reactions? Why did they happen? How do we know when the reaction is serious enough that we need to get right back to the vet? Uh, and what, if anything, can a, a pet parent do to avoid or at least minimize risk? Right. So I'm sorry about your friend's dog. That's really sad. And I, ha I hate to say, but we do see adverse reactions. We are putting a foreign material, a biological material, into an animal with the intention of stimulating an immune response. However, that immune response doesn't always do exactly what we want it to do. And some of the adverse reactions that we see are actually an over-stimulated immune response or an exaggerated response. And those are the kind of immune-mediated autoimmune situations we can see, which is typical of what you were describing with your friend's dog. Um, they're very rare, and it's really important to remember that these vaccines are pre preventing diseases that would create much, much, much more disease and fatalities um, than adverse reactions do. That being said, if it's your dog that has an adverse reaction, that doesn't provide you much comfort. Um, it's There's a couple things that can be done to prevent, or not to prevent, but to minimize the risk. One is to separate vaccines out. So I'm really not a fan of giving four vaccinations at one visit. If we can separate them out into two, um, maybe at the most three at once, I, it's a little less likely to cause a problem. Um, really, like we were just discussing, Look at your animal's exposure and only vaccinate for what your animal needs to be protected against. If your animal is not going to the boarding facility, then do we really need to do see, you know, the influenza virus and the Bordetella? So um, being judicious, not vaccinating more often than is necessary. You know, the distemper combination is every three years once they've established immunity and uh, same for the rabies. Um, the reactions that we see can be run the gamut. They can be things like you said, malaise, just kind of not feeling well, a little bit lethargic, um, not eating as great for one to three days. And those are pretty self-limiting. Those animals do fine. It's kind of like some people when they get a flu shot, they don't feel well for a couple of days. I think that's even those minor reactions are pretty rare. Um, I personally see it maybe one in a hundred vaccines, but it is disconcerting for the clients. I tell my clients if that um, lethargy lasts more than 24 hours, I want a phone call. I want to know what's going on and to discuss it to see if we need to check that animal out. Um, there can be more serious uh, reactions.
reactions, especially an anaphylactic reaction, which means that animal's truly um, allergic to that vaccine. And if that happens, that usually manifests as vomiting and diarrhea or facial swelling within an hour of vaccine, usually within 15 minutes of vaccination. If your animal's ever, ever, ever vaccinated and then develops facial swelling, vomiting, or diarrhea within an hour or two, you just need to get that animal back to the veterinarian immediately. You don't want to wait on that. Um, in people, when we have an anaphylactic reaction, we have trouble breathing. And while that can happen in dogs, it's very rare. Usually it starts with vomiting and diarrhea, but the cascade of events is very similar and we need to get that treated right away. If we intervene right away, we usually can stop that type of reaction. The other thing is if you know your animal had a reaction to make sure that the veterinarian is aware of that, especially if you switch veterinarians or you're not at the same place where that happened, and there can be, we can often pre-treat the animal with something that will make a reaction very unlikely. Oh, that's, that's good to know. I didn't know that. Could you, you know, give us a couple of examples of how vaccinating works to uh, prevent a resurgence of disease? Sure, that's a really good question. Um, we vaccinate, when we vaccinate dogs, we're accomplishing two goals. The first is to provide a protection for that individual animal, and that's what we've been discussing this whole time. But the second is to decrease the number of dogs in any community that are susceptible to that disease. And when enough dogs in an area are vaccinated, the virus can no longer thrive in that environment because it can't find enough dogs that are susceptible to it, and then that virus dies out. Um, and this prevents the disease from becoming an, an epidemic. Um, I have a great example which is parvovirus. And you often hear veterinarians and experts talk about the epidemic of parvovirus in the 1980s, and thousands and thousands of dogs died from parvovirus, and millions of dollars were spent trying to treat those animals. And on a local level, a more recent level, I can give you an example. So I work, um, my practice is in Denver, and I actually have a clientele that has the resources to educate, you know, they're well-educated, they can do preventive care, and they really take really good care of their animals. I am five miles away from a clinic that really struggles to get their patients appropriately vaccinated. And last year, I saw one case of parvovirus in my clinic. And this other clinic that's five miles away saw over 50 cases and a third of those dogs died. So really, if you can get a community to come together and provide good vaccination, you can prevent the diseases from becoming an epidemic. You know, we've uh, especially invited listeners to join in the conversation and ask questions. And Kim Thomas uh, who runs a blog, uh, Cindy Lou's Muse, asked, um, she said, you know, I don't understand why a vet would only offer a one-year shot for rabies with a three-year available uh, without much price, and, you know, a, a price differential there. And, uh, and she, she wanted to know if, if uh, this was, you know, just kind of a, a ripoff for clients, or is it possible that they didn't hear about the new protocols, or could it be a vet's preference where they're getting them back in next year to see the dog? What, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Most states, state laws require an initial vaccine with rabies around 16 weeks of age, a um, booster one year later, and then vaccination every three years. There are some interesting municipalities that absolutely require it every year, but that's becoming less and less common. 
quite honestly, I can't justify annual vaccination for rabies once they develop their initial immunity. Um, having said that, my practice is in an area that doesn't have a high incidence of rabies, and I suspect that some veterinarians have gone through the real terror of um, interacting with dog, rabid animals, and they're really scared to change it. They really fear for their patients and their clients. So it's worth a discussion, and it's definitely worth um, expressing your opinion and making sure that you find a veterinarian that has some belief system than, as you do when it comes to vaccinations. Yeah, I think that's important to get uh, it set up with a veterinarian who actually listens to your concerns because yeah. it makes for such a happier life. <laughs> yeah, I think it's imperative. And yeah. if I have clients yeah. that don't want to talk to me, I don't want to talk to them <laughs> because that's I want about it. You know, it's like yeah. okay, if you're going to be that way. Um. Yeah, it's a team effort. We have to work together. Absolutely. So. Her other question was, uh, what about Bordetella, the shot for Lyme disease? Uh, doggy flu and any other elective, so-called elective vaccines. When are those advisable? Uh, she she says the the answers usually given to that question are so open-ended it's maddening. <laughs> she said, "So how do we decide? You know yeah. what what mechanism can she use to say okay now?" Um, and. It's not only maddening for the clients, but it can be frustrating as a veterinarian trying to determine what exposures are. So back in the day when we vaccinated everyone with everything, it was pretty black and white and no one had this question. But I don't think that's the best way to do it. And the reason it's maddening is because as a veterinarian, I need to assess what your pet's exposure is. And sometimes I get, well, they don't really go to a boarding facility, but they walk down the street and there's four dogs that walk by every day and they cough. And it's so then I have to have the discussion, okay, this isn't, you know, in the category where I consider it to be high risk, but there is some exposure and it really depends on that client's comfort with that level of exposure. So it does become a little open-ended and maddening in many situations. I think there are some definite guidelines, which um, we will reiterate. So if a dog goes to a boarding facility, regular grooming, daycare facilities, they should absolutely get kennel cough or or the Bordetella vaccine. Um, And that's really prevents against a complex variety of respiratory diseases. It's not just one, something called kennel cough. That's a group of things that it it prevents against. Um, If they're in a geographical area that has canine influenza virus and has those exposures to other dogs, then the influenza vaccine is recommended, but only in those areas. Um, Lyme disease, only if they're in those geographical areas with the tick vector and they're having problems with Lyme disease in in that geographical area. I would never recommend it to someone in Colorado, for say, or or, or Chicago. I uh, I think in general those are guidelines. The core vaccines, the distemper parvo combination, the rabies vaccination need to be given on a three-year schedule once immunity has been established to every animal. And like we've said many times, annual examinations for every single pet, discuss the risk factors, discuss the vaccine history, discuss potential changes in the lifestyle so you make sure your animal's protected but not over-vaccinated. And I think, you know, what you've underscored here is discuss. Talk to the vet if you have a question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Collaborate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, and then there's one more question, and this is on cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's with the vaccine for FIV? Says uh, the down. She knows the downsides of it, but she's wondering if there there would be times when it would be better to get it. And she said, right now, it's not really usually recommended. This is probably one vaccine that has more opinions from veterinarians than any other vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so that's, her question is definitely a, a good one. Um, 
there are occasions when FIV vaccine is appropriate. The one that I um, see a lot of is when there is an FIV positive cat in the household and someone's adopting a cat that does not have FIV. I do recommend that they vaccinate the new cat that they're introducing into the environment with the FIV vaccine. Um, the American Association of Feline Practitioners does recommend that if a cat goes outdoors and has exposure to other cats, that they do vaccinate for FIV. The concern with FIV is that vaccination is that any cat that's vaccinated for FIV will then test positive for that disease, and there's no distinguishing between vaccine positive and true disease. And so if an animal gets picked up by a shelter, test it for FIV, it's often the protocol after the three-day waiting period to euthanize an FIV-positive cat, and that cat may have simply have been vaccinated. So we need to make sure whenever we're giving an FIV vaccine that we put a microchip in that cat and we keep the data, inf- the information on that microchip current because if this cat ends up at a shelter, they will scan that and then we'll contact the owner and the owner can then provide the information that this is a vaccinated cat and save that cat's life. The other problem with the FIV vaccine is that there are sub- several subtypes of FIV and the vaccine does not get all of them, does not protect against all of them. And there's probably not great cross reaction against the ones it does protect against and the one it does not. So an animal can be vaccinated for FIV and still get the disease. And in that case, you test the animal, if they're going to come up positive on your test. You don't know if the animal truly does have FIV or if it's just because they were vaccinated. Well, that's really not helpful. No. <laughs> um, well, thanks for another great session, Dr. Steele. If there's anything else you'd like to add, or you can just give us the web address for more on what Partners for Healthy Pets offer. Yeah, this has been a great session. I really appreciate the opportunity. I just want to underscore that these questions should be asked to your veterinarian, and each year these answers might change. So go in once a year, have this discussion, find out what your individual pet needs, and you can find out more information at healthypetcheckup.org. Thanks, April. Thank you. We'll be back next month talking about the epidemic of obesity in pets, what to do about it safely, and some of the misconceptions on what obesity means in terms of disease. Thanks for listening.